On this edition of the Maryland Baseball Network podcast, we name our Terp of the Week and take a deep dive on some Big Ten standings scenarios with just a few weeks left in the regular season. Plus, we continue our segment from last week where we make a statement about the Maryland team and break it down. One of them this week is Taylor Bloom, Maryland's X-Factor for the postseason. Plus, we have a lengthy chat about the art of hitting with Maryland shortstop Kevin Smith. Some really interesting things in there about some ideologies and things like bat path and launch angle. Finally, we look ahead to the Terp Series this weekend in Champaign, Illinois against the Illinois Fighting Illini. Here we go. This is the Maryland Baseball Network Podcast. Here's your host, Jake Eisenberg. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the 35th edition of the Maryland Baseball Network Podcast. Jake Eisenberg alongside Justin Galanti. And we'll start today as we've started over the past couple of weeks with our Terp of the Week. And, well, for the first time since we started this, it's not Zach Jankarski. Instead, it goes to a pitcher this week, Justin. Yes, we're going to go with Taylor Bloom, the Sunday starter for Maryland the last few weeks as our Terp of the Week. And as the, the Terps lost two of three this weekend and nobody had an overly outstanding weekend, we give it to Bloom because of the accumulation of his last three starts, which have all been really solid, starting with Penn State, then Michigan State, and now Indiana. And yes, the Terps weren't able to hold on on Sunday, but he pitched in some really difficult conditions. It was essentially pouring rain for the entire game, which started at 11 o'clock in the morning. He went six innings, six hits, two runs, seven strikeouts, which is a lot for Taylor, and only two walks, and gave the Terps a chance to win the game. Certainly, and I think you take a look at the last three starts that he had. You mentioned going back to Penn State. Seven innings, gave up two runs against the Nittany Lions. Went seven and two-thirds against the Spartans. Gave up just one earned run, two total, and had four strikeouts and no walks in that start. And then, you know, this past Sunday, Indiana, you mentioned the seven strikeouts, two walks, six solid innings. That's three straight quality starts from Taylor Bloom after three straight, or four straight, rather, not quality starts. So really seeming to turn things around. And we'll talk a little bit later about why that's such a big sign for Maryland. But, you know, the other reason why Taylor Bloom, you know, comes in as the Terp of the Week this week is, well, you look at the Terps and you look at the performances and nobody really stood out. I think it was overall a consistent weekend for Maryland. Of course, a 9-2 loss in the Friday game is not what you want. Really a Friday-Saturday game because overall, Justin, it was just a wacky weekend. And you were there. And, I mean, you can attest to that. It really was. Um, Friday night starts raining. They try and keep everyone there as long as they could because they knew the weekend forecast wasn't great. It ended up that they kept us there a little bit too long to the point where it became a tornado warning and we actually couldn't leave uh, for a little bit. So that game got resumed on Saturday. I saw you hid in a closet. Well, it wasn't really hiding. We were told we had to go in a closet. I mean, give paint, paint a picture for me here. So we're, they finally call the game after sitting there for... A couple, it was an hour and a half, two hours, and I only know that because we made it through a podcast and a half playing on our <laughs> airwaves in the rain delay, and they finally call the game. Maryland's out. The team's out in the locker room batting cage area out in left field, you know, kind of a storage facility, and Taylor Smythe and I are up in the press box, obviously. They finally call the game. We're about to leave, and this guy walks in and says, we're in a tornado warning. You can't go. Uh, we need to find somewhere to put everyone. And then the first suggestion was, all right, everybody go in the bathroom, which was <laughs> not very big, <laughs> and it was going to be a problem. And then finally they realized this closet's big enough, so we go in there. It's Taylor and myself, a couple Indiana people, and then they didn't shut the door, so we didn't understand, like, how are we safe if the door's not shut? But regardless, we get into talking with those people, 
and we said, should we actually be worried right now? And they said no. They said in, the weather somehow always goes around Bloomington, and they get the effects of it, but not the actual tornadoes. So we felt pretty secure, and eventually after 15, 20 minutes, we were finally let out of the closet. Now, little, little known fact, uh, I lived in Little Rock, Arkansas when I was less than a year old and survived a tornado, uh, as I'm told. I don't remember anything about it, but... Um, I guess you are now a fellow tornado survivor, so congratulations. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was, looking back, kind of a fun experience to be a part of something. and You have the story to tell. Absolutely. At least. But it made for a really confusing weekend overall in terms of schedule changes. You had the game being resumed in the morning on Saturday, and then the, I guess, second game of not really a doubleheader, but it's still a doubleheader on Saturday, and then rain on Sunday. And it really threw the pitching schedule out of whack, and that's a big part of where Maryland kind of faltered this weekend. Absolutely, and I think we missed out on what was going to be a really good pitching matchup on Friday night because Brian Schaefer looked sharp as always, and Indiana's Friday night guy, Jonathan Stever, looked outstanding through a couple of innings. So we lost that. Both teams lost their Friday night starters, and then both teams decided to go to the bullpen to start the continuation of the game on Saturday. And we discussed a little bit on air and off air as well, Taylor and I, whether you know, a team should throw their Saturday and Sunday starters in the two games on Saturday, even though it was starting in the bottom of the third inning the first game, and try and secure two wins and kind of figure out Sunday on Sunday. Both teams decided to go to bullpen guys. For Maryland, it didn't really work out. Ryan Hill couldn't find the strike zone, threw 40 pitches in the inning, and Maryland had to make a change and fell behind early. For Indiana, they were able to throw one pitcher the entire game, Cal Kruger, who was outstanding, and they kind of ran away with that one, nine to two. But then you end up, you know, you you essentially lost Hill in that game. So while he was available on Sunday, he was only available for one inning, from what I'm told. So basically, you put tremendous patch, pressure, excuse me, on Blom and Bloom to give you length when you've kind of lost your long man in Hill. Um, you know, it's easy to second guess a decision after it happens, um, but. Both coaches clearly had the same mindset, John Schaff and Chris Limonis, to go with a bullpen guy. Well, I mean, give Bloom and Bloom credit. They both went six-plus innings and basically had pretty similar box scores. And, you know, Bloom had a little bit more trouble. He pitched out of a couple jams, and Bloom was a little bit sharper, as we kind of talked about earlier. And, I mean, just to touch on what Tyler Bloom has done as a freshman, he's now 8-3 and three in 11 starts. He's had a decision in every start. And while decisions really don't mean a whole lot, it's still kind of – remarkable that he's had a decision at every start. It is, and if you told me as an outside observer somebody has a decision every start, you would think, okay, they're going eight, nine innings every start because they're pitching long enough for the game to be decided. Um, Blom's giving good l length of late, but that's not exactly the case where, you know, he's not throwing complete games, so it's just a weird turn of things, and fortunately for him, he's pitched well a lot this season, gotten good run support. He told us about that a little bit early in the week so things have worked out for him and he's he's had an outstanding freshman year I think as good as anybody could have hoped for and we talked about this I think two weeks ago seems like a very good candidate for Big Ten freshman of the year right I mean you go eight and three a 2.53 ERA and 11 starts 57 innings for Blome he struck out 52 walked 23 
That opponent's batting average still hovering around 200. It's at 210. That's a really solid freshman campaign. We talked about last week how kind of similar it was to Mike Shawarin's 2014 freshman campaign. And if that's a sign of anything, the Terps are going to be in good shape with this southpaw going forward for the next couple of years and certainly seems to be in the driver's seat for that freshman of the year consideration. Absolutely. And it's interesting just looking back. I mean, during fall ball in the winter, Blome was kind of 50-50 to even be the Sunday starter. And since then, he's risen to being the Saturday starter, and he's picked up a lot of wins for the Terps, and he's really a trustworthy guy. It's great for the coaching staff when you lose the first game of a series to feel so much confidence going into a, going to a freshman in game two, as they did, did this weekend, able to pick up a win and even it and at least set up a rubber game. So the Terps now stand on the season 29-13 and 13-5 and and in Big Ten play. 29 wins, one shy of 30 would mark John Sheff's fifth straight season of 30 or more wins. And Terps with 12 games left in the regular season, pretty good odds to get there, especially with the schedule that remains. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on in the podcast. But 13-5 and five in Big Ten, Maryland is in the driver's seat in the Big Ten Conference. And we were both looking at this a little bit earlier, the kind of scenarios that could happen in the Big Ten over the coming weeks. The Terps have two more conference series. They're traveling to Illinois this weekend and then host Northwestern for their final home series of the season and final conference series of the season. Meanwhile, there are a bunch of other teams, and really most other teams, that have nine conference games left in the season. And that gives the standings and really the scenarios a little bit of a wrinkle going forward. You look at a team like Nebraska, and you know they're sitting just kind of one loss behind the Terps you know, with their 9-5 and 1 record. So they, Nebraska, in owning the tiebreaker with Maryland, has about as good a shot to leapfrog the Terps should they stumble a little bit. The Cornhuskers host Rutgers, they host Michigan State, and then they travel to Penn State, who's currently in the cellar of the Big Ten Conference. Purdue right behind Nebraska, Minnesota in there as well. Michigan, Iowa. By the way, four teams at 9-6 and six in conference play. It's a very, very tight race in the Big Ten until you really get to that number 8 spot where Michigan State sits at 7-8, and eight, and then you have the, the cellar dwellers below that 8 seed who are fighting to get into that tournament berth range. Nobody is out yet. Nobody has been eliminated. The one team that sits really on the edge of the cliff is Penn State. If they don't, well, if they get swept and Michigan State sweeps, that's the only scenario where Penn State's eliminated, but, but they really don't have much room for error going forward. Right, and so you look at it, and it's amazing because – the top two teams in the conference right now, Maryland and Nebraska, you mentioned it, have pretty light schedules in conference. The Terps at Illinois, home for Northwestern, and then Nebraska, home for Rutgers, home for Michigan State, at Penn State. So it's not out of the question at all that Maryland wins its final six Big Ten games and Nebraska wins its final nine. And if that were to happen, then Maryland would get the one seed based off the travel curfew tie that Nebraska had against Indiana. Right. It, it's it kind of weird how that all came back to bite really both the Hoosiers and the Cornhuskers. So the Hoosiers sitting at 10-7-1, should they run the table and do well, they have a chance to propel themselves into the top three seeds or even you know kind of work their way into two or even one, depending on how the rest of the things shake out. But Maryland, if they win out in the Big Ten Conference, they clinch the regular season title at least that's the math that I've done. And as we've learned on broadcasts prior... Well, it's right. My math is not always right, but I think it's pretty sound here. No, I think it's right because... I've double-checked this a couple times. The best it could, the best Maryland could be is 19-5, and five, and the best Nebraska could be is 18-5-1. And 18-5-1 and one is not as good as 19-5. Right, five. it's percentage points lower 
than 19-5 and five overall. So that tie really did, well, we talked about this, I think it was a few weeks ago, how we mentioned that Nebraska and Indiana had tied. We talked about this a little bit during the Nebraska series, how that could be a huge factor in terms of the Big Ten standings down the road. And, well, that's exactly what's happening. So something that the Cornhuskers will have to deal with, something that the Hoosiers will have to deal with. But, I mean, watch out for a team like Purdue. This is a team that Maryland doesn't see this season and won't see likely until the Big Ten tournament. But the Boilermakers, after not making the Big Ten tournament last year and really being the basement of the Big Ten for the past few years, they have had a resurgence this year, sitting above 500 over there, all 9-6 and six in the Big Ten, and a relatively, well, their schedule going forward, I don't know if you'd describe it as easy or hard. They host Northwestern, they host Michigan, and they travel to Minnesota. I would say that's pretty tough. I would say those those last two series are certainly difficult, hosting a Michigan team that's regarded as one of the top 20 in the country, and then traveling to Minnesota, a team that's tied with them in the Big Ten. That'll be a really fun series to watch, and that one, I guarantee you, will decide some seeding in the Big Ten. Absolutely. Purdue's had a resurgence, kind of a culture change there this year. They've turned things around. Michigan dropped the game to Rutgers this weekend, which was, A, shocking because it was Friday when Oliver Jasky pitched, and not good for them. So they're now in that 9-6 and six group. Without that, they'd still be in second. Um, but it's interesting how this conference is shaping up right now because it's too early to look at this. But it's And it is too early because right. nothing can really happen this weekend. Right. But just looking at the way things sit right now, and this is entirely possible because Maryland's in first and controls their own destiny, and then Michigan State in eighth is not overly close to seventh. They're two games behind Indiana. And do we really expect Rutgers to jump up from ninth to eighth with series at Nebraska coming up? Well, Maybe they not. host they it's host possible. Illinois and they travel to Northwestern. So don't count out the Scarlet Knights. Okay. But my, my point just being, and I know what happened the Friday night in College Park, but it's I don't know if Maryland's excited that right now it's shaping up for them to face Alex Troop the first game of the Big Ten tournament. Well, that's one thing, and that that's kind of that's a really interesting point, and we'll definitely touch on that as we get a little Most bit closer. Most of my points are interesting. <laughs> I think that's something that we'll definitely you know be able to talk a lot more about once the picture becomes a little bit clearer. I think right now the the overarching point that we're making is that it's a much tighter Big Ten race than it looked like it would be at the onset of the season. You've got a big grouping. You've got four teams essentially tied for third place in the conference. And like we said, nobody's really out of it. Illinois, Ohio State, Northwestern, Rutgers, they can all jump into that eighth spot depending on how things happen over the next two weeks. Um, just to go back to what we were talking about in terms of the conference series that are left, there are three teams that have six total conference games left, Maryland being one of them, Minnesota being the other, and Indiana being the third. So that'll be an interesting thing. And, you know, you're showing me right now that apparently Minnesota and Rutgers are going to try and make up that series that got canceled because of travel restrictions or what have you right, because, earlier this season. Because Rutgers couldn't get out to Minnesota, but Rutgers ends class a lot earlier than everyone does, everyone else does. So they would kind of have the chance to go out there during a midweek or something like that and make up games because they don't have to worry about class anymore. Now that'd be really interesting because, I mean, then you force Minnesota into a position where they use their weekend guys. Do they use midweek guys how do they how do they function going into a weekend like that and well you look at Minnesota's schedule they do have a non-conference series against Long Beach and while that'd be a great series you know from an RPI standpoint if they're fighting for if they're jockeying for position in the Big Ten do they maybe put more emphasis on a series against Rutgers than they do you know a non-conference series and I think that's something to watch well yeah I mean it 
it depends on, you know, Long Beach is a very good team. So, I mean, it's just really tough because it's a double-edged sword because it's like if you focus on Long Beach, take two of three, three from them and then don't focus on Rutgers and lose two of, th of three to them, it hurts you as much as it helps well, you. Well, it's almost the same thing for Rutgers because they now have theoretically 12 conference games left and they're trying to fit them into a three-week window. So they're, you know, kind of playing at a disadvantage as well. But overall, what we're really saying is that this Big Ten picture, while it's muddled now, the Terps still in the driver's seat, and things I think will be a lot, lot clearer after this weekend, depending on how Maryland fares against Illinois and, well, how everyone else does. Right, and what we need to happen is that everyone needs to get closer to playing the same amount of conference games because <laughs> right. right now it's just super hard to tell because the Terps have thir are, are 13 and 5 and Nebraska at 9, 5, and 1, so... You know, if the Big Ten goes by percent winning percentage, not games back to be exact. So it's just hard to tell right now. Right. Most teams have already had their non-conference break in the Big Ten schedule. Maryland doesn't have theirs until the final weekend of the season. And, Justin, there could be a situation, depending on what happens over these two weeks, that Maryland ends up being a scoreboard watcher to see what happens with the other teams that final weekend of the season to see if they get that regular season crown or if they have that one seed in the Big Ten tournament. So, you know, that's something that could be coming down the line. Well, I'll tell you what. All indications are that it's going to be better than last year when they had to win on a Sunday at Michigan State just to get to the Big Ten tournament. Right. That is that is for sure. And I think we can say with a good level of confidence that the Terps can all but book their tickets to Bloomington for the Big Ten tournament. And, you know, we'll see what happens after that. So we kind of broke down the Big Ten Conference, and now it's time for our new segment. We debuted this last week, and we're going to bring it back this week because it was well-received by anyone who reached out to us to tell us they liked it. No one told us they didn't, so we're going to keep going with it. Did anyone actually tell us they liked it? Yeah, I, I heard from a few okay, people that, cool. they, that they enjoyed it. Taylor Smythe, notably, really, really enjoyed it. Um, so shout-out to him because I know he, he'll end up listening. But we're still trying to come up with a name for this. We we bounced around. O Overreaction Monday is not really the right way to go because our podcast is released on Tuesday despite the fact that we recorded on Mondays, just to give you a little inside baseball there. Um, Hot Take Tuesday was a, was a suggestion from you, and I like that. But there's a part of me that doesn't really want to be a part of the Hot Take culture. Okay. Um, so I want to I want to shy above, away from I that. see you're above that. Yeah, I you're feel right. I feel like we at Maryland because baseball are, not, are above the hot takes because we're not just trying to make dumb statements. They're educated statements that are more interesting than the average right. claim, but they're not just absurd hot takes. Right. So I guess we'll call it a work in progress. And that's uh, a terrible name. Well, <laughs> <laughs> here we go. New segment: work in progress. Justin, what do we have first? <laughs> Well, <laughs> the first one, I think we should go with someone we talked about earlier, and that's Taylor Bloom. And the statement is, Taylor Bloom is the X factor for Maryland's postseason success. And the reason I say that is I think there's a lot of confidence in Brian Schaefer, as there should be. The confidence level is very high in Tyler Bloom. And if Taylor Bloom can give Maryland innings, length, and quality the way he has his last three starts – and they set up with a 1-2-3 that's very difficult to contend with in Big Ten tournament play and further in the regional. Well, I think this is a fair statement and a really interesting point because entering this season, and, and you're giving a little fist pump there, I like I like the passion, Justin. Um, the reason I say that is entering this season, one of the biggest strengths that we identified on the Terps was their starting pitching depth. And that's something that 
has been kind of reversed as we've gone through this season. Entering the year, we saw Brian Schaefer, Taylor Bloom, Hunter Parsons, Tyler Blome, and Cameron Ike as really five viable options for Maryland in a starting role given how they performed in the spring and then in their respective summers. And, well, it hasn't really happened this season for neither Hunter nor for Cam. Uh, even though they both pitched this weekend, Hunter gave up six runs in three innings. Cam had two scoreless innings. But, but still, not guys that you would say are viable options starting right now. So really, you look at three main options, Schaefer, Blome, and Bloom, and in order to be successful in the Big Ten tournament or beyond, as we've seen in the past, you need at least really, really three to four strong, strong options. You know, a couple of years ago when Maryland had their success in the Super Regionals, it was Mike Schwarren, Taylor Bloom, Brian Schaefer. You had Jake Drosner making some key starts. Rob Galligan came through in clutch situations. Taylor Styles was there in 2014. Ryan Selmer was in there a little bit as well in 2015. And that depth hasn't necessarily been there this year. Now, that's why Bloom is the X factor, because if he pitches well, you have that really second or third guy to get you to where you need to be in a situation where then you can piece things together with a guy like Ryan Hill. And I think then your fifth option becomes someone like John Murphy. Yeah, I mean, it's possible. Um, th the point that was made to me, because this was discussed a lot this weekend, was especially in a conference like the Big Ten, once you get to game four of the tournament, everyone's in the same spot. Right. But you have to get there. And if Maryland continues to see Taylor Bloom pitch the way he is, I think they'll be very confident that they can get there. Right. Of course, you know, not freakish things happen, but there are things that happen with other teams. We saw Iowa last year as the eighth seed in the tournament come through with Nick Gallagher, who is lights out against Maryland in that semifinal game. You know, we saw Ryan Selmer have success, you know, filling in, you know, in certain spots a couple of years ago. So things can happen with these bullpen guys where they catch fire and they have, you know, excellent success. Right. So it was exactly basically what Cal Kruger did on right, Saturday exactly. against Maryland. That's a great point. Thank you. You're welcome. He goes set, he goes six innings in the continuation of the game from Friday, only gives up two runs, and was really solid. You almost don't know what's going to happen because these guys don't get opportunities like this until the postseason, but you see it all, all the time when you watch the NCAA tournament, to be honest. I mean, a team gets into a super where it's game three or a regional where it's the final game after you know the double elimination tournament gets to both teams that have one loss and you're playing for the regional title and these teams have dominant closers, and they say, go start and give us what you can. And sometimes it doesn't go well, and sometimes you end up with six scoreless from a guy that's giving you two max the whole year. Right. So we'll, we'll put that statement to rest. I think we both agree that Bloom will be an X factor down the stretch. My statement, I'm going to say, and I don't know that this is necessarily bold, but I think we should put it out there. I'm going to say that Maryland will run the table. I think they, I think they have a strong chance to win out. And I say this because there are only three games against teams that currently have a record above 500, those being the final three games of the season against High Point. That, I think, is Maryland's strongest opponent at the end of the season, and I think that'll be the toughest games for Maryland, given that they're on the road and Maryland's had so much success at home. I think you look at a team like Illinois, and that's a team that Maryland should take care of business. You see Northwestern at home, that's a team Maryland should take care of business. Same goes for UMBC and James Madison those two midweek games, May 9th and 10th, and even Towson coming up this week on Wednesday. That's perhaps Maryland's weakest opponent the rest of the way. Towson, an RPI of 231. Um, so not a lot of chances for Maryland to improve its resume going forward, and I think that the Terps take care of business. 
Yeah, it's definitely a fair statement. The schedule is not overly hard. One thing to mention is that Illinois is coming off taking two of three from Minnesota, so that's probably the most impressive weekend they've had the whole year, similar to Indiana last week who was coming off the two best weekends they had the whole year. And it's kind of unfortunate for Maryland, actually, because Illinois is still really poor in the RPI. But They jumped 40 points. But they're still in the 150s, I believe. 141 141. Right so that's not going to look good, even if they that good, even if they sweep them and it's on the road. Well, that's the big problem with the games coming up for the Terps is that none of these wins are necessarily good wins, except for the ones that come on the road because you get a little bit of extra and I think they're going emphasis to need, there. I think they do need – I mean, this is getting away from your statement. I'll go back and say that's it's, okay. a, it's a fair statement. I think Maryland needs to start proving they can win some games on the road. That was going to be my next point road. because that's the biggest knock on Maryland's resume right now. They have not won a single series on the road. And I'm not including the three games in carry. Those were neutral site games technically. Right. Um, I think you can look at those in some capacity as road wins. Technically, they go into the book as neutral site wins. So Maryland has not won a road series all season. They split two games against UNCW. They lost two out of three to Nebraska, lost two out of three to Indiana, and got swept by LSU. I mean, some of those were tough, but... Oh, I'm not I'm not questioning that the, the, the schedule strength, itself is tough. The strength of schedule is no, there. D- there's no doubt the road games have been harder than the home games. No, I think you look overall strength of schedule, road games by far have been the tougher group of games for the Terps. I mean, you host teams like Bryant and Princeton in College Park, and you travel to play teams like LSU and Nebraska in their ballparks, which are, you know, atmospheres that are tough places to play. Those games, six games against LSU, Nebraska, certainly... And Indiana, for that matter. And Indiana, for that And even, you know, going down to uh, Boshmer Stadium in UNC, that's not an easy place to play either. So I think you take all of that into stock and you say, okay, this is why the road record isn't as good as it might be, and also why the home record is as good as it is, potentially. Um, but I think from a committee perspective, if I were the committee, I'd like to see the Terps win a road game or two, although I don't think it would affect their seating or stock going into the NCAA tournament. Well, I'll play right off that with my next statement, which is that unfortunately after this weekend, I know it was a weird weekend, but I'm going to say that the Terps hosting a regional is off the table because Indiana before the Big Ten tournament was really their last chance to pick up any quality regular season wins. And by losing that series, as you mentioned, not winning a series on the road yet this year, I think it would be very easy for the committee to say, this team's so much better at home. They haven't proven it on the road, and therefore we don't think one, they are one of the 16 best in the country. I think that's a fair statement, and I think it's also important to underscore the fact that when we said that last week, it was a very lofty statement for Maryland to host a regional in the first place, given that they're a team coming out of the Big Ten and not necessarily you know, steamrolling the Big Ten. Um, and you mentioned you know, the road record. That plays into it also. Also, there are just a lot of really good teams coming out of the SEC and the ACC. Oregon State out of the Pac-12 has been absurdly good this season. So I think you have you know, really 16 to 20 teams that would host before Maryland does necessarily. Of course, there are only 16 hosts. And, you know, and then you bring into to question you know, where Maryland might host. Um, but that's a conversation for another time. But I think the Terps, like you said, their last resume building opportunity was this past weekend. Fortunately, it didn't happen in the same way that they might have liked it to. So, I mean, look, the Terps will more than settle with an NCAA tournament appearance. It just might not happen in College Park. Right, and we said last week, I think you agreed with me, but the statement I made was that they needed to take at least two of three from Indiana and then not lose a game 
the rest of the season. I mean, that didn't happen. Um, as you mentioned, it would have been a stretch for Maryland to host an, an NCAA regional. I think some things would have had to happen outside of their games to help them. But right now, I just, I, and I think you agree, it probably won't happen. Okay, so moving on to my next statement. Uh, Kevin Smith, Maryland shortstop, the preseason All-American, the highly touted player coming back after a summer on Cape Cod that was out of this world. Kevin Smith is back. And I realize I'm saying this with 12 games left in the regular season. It's hard to be back so close to the end of the line. But we mentioned Bloom is an X factor. I think Kevin Smith is as much of an X factor. The defense has been there all season. The bat has come and gone, especially with the seven games that he missed in the middle of the season. But when you take a look at what he's done since he came back, you know, things were kind of shaky against Penn State. George Mason, he had two hits in four games. But he's now on a four-game hitting streak, and two of those games have been multi-hit affairs. Also had a big home run this weekend, which means the power is starting to come back for Kevin Smith. That's really, you know, what he brings to the table that you don't necessarily assume that's there. But eight home runs for him and, you know, more RBIs than most of the guys on the team batting at the bottom of the order. Kevin Smith is back. Yeah, I mean, I think this season has been somewhat circuitous for Kevin because he got off to the slow start, he was starting to get hot, and then got hurt. So he essentially had to restart his season again, got off to the slow start, and now it seems like he's getting hot. He hit some balls hard this weekend at Indiana. He hit a big home run, but I was even more impressed with the ringing triple he had off the fence to dead center field. That was really impressive. It seems like his swing is getting back to where he wants it. You know, there was a – I know he's big on launch angle and things like that. And we'll, we talked about that a little bit, a lot. Quite, well, quite a bit, actually. Right, but – and I'm looking forward to hearing that, but it seemed like there might have been a little bit too much of an uppercut at some points, and there were a lot of pop-ups and a lot of humpback ground balls where you're just kind of grazing the top of the ball. I, I don't know as well as Kevin does, but that's just what it looked like from behind home plate, the perspective. But this week he was hitting the ball really hard, and I don't think it's an unfair statement to say that Kevin looks like he's on his way back. I mean, you take a look at the Maryland lineup. We've talked about this, I think, quite a bit how one through nine, the Terps have a deep lineup. When you start things off with Jankarski, who's having a breakout season, then you go to Brandon Gum, who's been a key addition to grad transfer from George Mason. Marty Costas, who's playing, quite frankly, like he is in the running for Big Ten Player of the Year, and he is. Then you go to Nick Dunn, a guy who was a freshman All-American and is really doing pretty much the same things he did last year. You know, And we haven't even gotten to Kevin Smith yet. We haven't even gotten to A.J. Lee, who's also having a breakout season, hitting in the nine hole. And then you have guys like Madison Nickens, Danny Maynard, Nick Sieri, Will Watson all making contributions consistently. Now, here's the point I want to make about Kevin Smith because there were a lot of lofty expectations surrounding Kevin coming into this season, and, well, that's what happens when you hit over 300 in the Cape Cod League against the best collegiate pitching, you know, day in and day out, and you win playoff MVP honors for a team that wins its third straight Cape Cod Baseball League title in a row. The, the expectations are going to come. He launched up prospect charts, and, you know, to Kevin's credit, he deserves to be exactly where he is on those charts, given his acumen as a shortstop. And, you know, we can expect him to be taken, you know, fairly high, I think, come June. But when you look at his college resume, the numbers from his three college seasons to date, in 2015, his freshman year, hit 273 with a 358 on base percentage and a 422 slugging percentage, seven home runs, 35 RBIs, 11 stolen bases, had 35 strikeouts, 29 walks. That's when Kevin Smith was a freshman All-American. Last year, played 57 games, so 10 games fewer than he had played in 2015. Slash 259, 308, 
409. So those numbers a little bit lower. But hit eight home runs. So one more home run. 34 RBIs, pretty much the same in 10 fewer games. Struck out 49 times, walked 16 times. So there was a big uptick in the strikeouts. That's why the average and the on-base percentage fell. Then you look at this year. Kevin Smith has missed seven games, so he's only played 35 out of the 42 that the Terps have this season. Slashing 267, 343, 558. Slugging percentage has gone up. Average is pretty much exactly where you would expect it to be had you only had those two seasons to take a look at. And the on-base percentage has gone back up to where it was his freshman season. That's largely because he's got 33 strikeouts, 11 walks. We've seen the walks come forward a little bit more than the strikeouts. He had a lot of strikeouts those first couple weeks of the season. Also, eight home runs again, 28 RBIs in 35 games. That's nearly 20 games fewer than he played than he that he played last year. And he's got pretty much the same, you know, slugging numbers. Also got seven doubles against nine last year. So in fewer games, Kevin Smith is putting up similar offensive numbers that he did last year, and strikeouts are down, which is why Kevin Smith is back. Yeah, and, and you've mentioned it a few times, but when scouts watch Kevin Smith, they look at a really shot, a really solid defensive shortstop with some pretty good pop. Batting average isn't really what they look at. And Kevin looks like he's turning it around, hitting the ball hard, as I mentioned. And I agree, if Taylor Bloom is not the X factor, I think Kevin Smith could be. So, next, my turn, right? right Absolutely. So I, I've, I've been speaking for a while. You have been. Um would not be surprised if people turned this off. <laughs> hopefully they stayed with us. I thought I thought it was interesting. No, it was. It, it definitely was. I didn't know where you were going with it. I thought you were just reading stats for a while, and then it, it, it made it. It came around. It came around. It came around. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so my next one is going to be that the events of this past weekend at Indiana should in no way change the perception of Maryland's team. Whatever you thought about them before the weekend, you should think about them now. And the reason I say that is because – Basically, this entire weekend in Bloomington was a bad situation that Indiana helped, uh, Indiana handled a little bit better than Maryland did, and I think that's in large part just due to the fact that they were at home and got to sleep in their own beds, and it wasn't a weird thing where you didn't know when you were going to be at the hotel. You didn't know when you were going to be eating. You didn't know if you were going to make your flight. You thought you might be going out to Bloomington and not play any games the whole weekend. You know, you lose the best pitcher in the Big Ten on Friday night after two innings because of rain. Just a lot of bad circumstances, and I don't think everything that happened should really reflect poorly on this team. So I think all the statements that we've made so far have been have been fair, and that includes this one because, you know, you take a look at things, and, well, the offense wasn't necessarily there that first game or over the two days, and, you know, I think this weekend you were there, but largely circumstantial based on the weather. I mean, you, you mentioned it. You lose your ace on Friday after two scoreless innings, you don't really know what would have happened in that game. Stever was pitching very right. well for I the mean, Hoosiers. Because it's you, anybody listening could easily say, well, Indiana lost their ace too. But I think Maryland's season has been predicated on Brian Schaefer winning and giving eight innings on Friday night. Because A, it gets you game one, and two, it sets up the bullpen for the whole weekend. Absolutely. You know, you save a guy like Ryan Hill for game two. You save Ryan Selmer for, for later on in the weekend. You know, we only saw... And four there was relievers. no Andrew Miller this weekend. We only saw right. We only saw four relievers this weekend. We saw Ryan Hill, and then we saw Hunter Parsons in, in and Cam Ang really in a nine-two ball game, um, just kind of eating innings. And then you know the day after we saw Ryan Selmer, and then we saw Ryan Selmer again on Sunday. So that's only Jamal got one out. Jamal did get one out, and it was a strikeout. So his his strikeout prowess continues. So five total relievers, 
Um, Ryan Selmer threw twice. Ryan Hill threw 40-plus pitches. And we saw Hunter Parsons and Cam Ang for the first time in a couple weeks. But we didn't see Andrew Miller, like you mentioned. We didn't really we didn't see Mike Racino. We didn't see Jared Price. There were a lot of guys who did not get work this weekend, largely you know, because of the circumstances. Right, and, and the scores do that to you. It was also kind of what I talked with Anthony Papio about a little bit, where Maryland wasn't really stealing any bases this weekend. And the reason for that was basically the scores of the game. I mean, they got behind by too much in the first game right away so that stealing bases couldn't be a part of what they were doing. Then in the second game, they got up big right away, so they didn't need to steal bases. And then on Sunday, it was raining so hard that they were sliding over second base every time they tried to get there, so they stopped stealing bases there too. So it was kind of the same thing with the pitching staff where the score dictated you know, mop-up duty or Selmer going three innings instead of a bunch of guys being used. Terps, however, you know, despite the lack of stolen bases this weekend, still top 10 in the entire nation in stolen bases. Maryland has 84 stolen bases. It's also second in the Big Ten behind Michigan. Michigan has 94. But And I know that's a point of pride for the coaching staff. They want that number one spot in the Big Ten. And Akeo Thomas, Michigan's leading base dealer, is out. So the Terps think they might be able to catch Michigan. That's a shame for for it is he's for the a Wolverines huge player. He was starting to make a run at Big Ten Player of the Year. Absolutely, he's been a spark plug for the Wolverines. He was an exciting player to watch, you know, a couple months ago, and he was a guy that you know came out of this summer, you know, very highly regarded as well. It's funny because him and Zach Jankarski hit one two in the Sanford Mainers lineup in the NECBL, and you know it looked like those two might start sneaking into the Conference Player of the Year race. I I still think Zach Jankarski no, is sneaking into that conversation. Th Thomas getting hurt, kind of. Right, it, it's it's it. tough. It's tough for for him. So all the best to Akeo Thomas. I'm um, sure he's listening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but point being, I think you're absolutely right. It's you can't look at this weekend and react to it too much. I think you have to take stock of what Maryland has done previously. So basically, and look at this weekend as circumstantial. So basically, don't overreact on Monday. I guess so. I guess this is our. our not overreaction Monday. Okay. Um, our final statement for work in progress, because uh, that's the, the running <laughs> title for this segment. I actually um, kind of like it. <laughs> I kind of like it, too, because, you know, <laughs> the season's a work in progress. The podcast is a work in progress. Um, so, yeah, work in progress. We'll, we'll run with that for now. <laughs> um, see how things work out. Um, even though the Terps lost two out of three. This is my statement, by the way. Even though the Terps lost two out of three in Bloomington this weekend, playing in Indiana at Bart Kaufman Field was a huge advantage for the Terps because that's where the Big Ten tournament is going to be come the end of May. And I think having played not only at Barkoffin Field, but playing at Barkoffin Field in the conditions that they did will give the Terps a leg up on the competition that they'll face in the Big Ten tournament, especially having played here so recently. Yeah, I think this is a beyond fair statement. I don't know if Beyond we, fair? Yes. Wow. First of all... How do we grade that? I don't know, but the turf at Bart Kaufman Stadium... I thought played really different than the turf in College Park. The bounces on ground balls were much higher. The mound was all turf, as we mentioned, so that's something to get used to. And when it rained, we saw a couple turps overslide second base, and that caused some issues. Will Watson hit a line drive down the left field line, tried to extend it to a double, and was safe, but then oversplowed the base and got tagged out. And I was told by some people with Indiana that there was somebody on Michigan in a rainy day earlier in the season who slid all the way past second base into center field. So you have to learn to approach your slide earlier on that field, especially when it's slick. And now Maryland, I mean, less than a month from the Big Ten tournament, being there is huge for them. It's an advantage. You know how the field plays. It's not as big of an advantage as Indiana will have, but it certainly counts for something. And also, I think there's something to be said for 
getting somewhat familiar spending four days in the city of Bloomington. It's not like you're in this foreign place. You've been there before. First time that Maryland had ever been there. Right. And, I mean, this is going to sound dumb, but I don't think it is. I mean, you know where there's places to eat, things like that. If you want to go, you know, go buy some Gatorade, you know where to go there, things like that. You're just a little bit more comfortable I didn't think city. that sounded dumb. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. You're welcome. In any case, the Terps, as we mentioned earlier, in the driver's seat, in the Big Ten Conference, sitting at 13-5 and five and have a chance to run the table and, and take the regular season crown for the first time in program history. But that'll do it for our work in progress segment. Hope you enjoyed it this time. And now we'll switch gears. We spoke to Kevin Smith for this edition of the podcast and a very cerebral hitter, really a guy on the quest for the perfect swing. We talked to Kevin Smith about that a little bit more. So here's our conversation with the Maryland shortstop. You know, for me, hitting, you want to know as much as you can about it. If, if that's what's going to, you know, make you get to the next level and that's what you want to improve, you kind of want to, you know, know all the ins and outs about it and, and figure out, you know, what the best in the world have been doing for, you know, 40, 50 years and, and kind of try to put that into your own swing. But that goes past, you know, looking at what types of pitches you might have more success at or what areas of the strike zone you have more success, you know, whether you like inside pitches, outside pitches, fastballs, change-ups. You go a little bit further than that, and you're looking at kind of more, I don't want to say sabermetric because that's not the right word, but I think fair to say more in-depth things like bat path, hip rotation, uh, elevation, things right. like that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two there's two ways to look at it. I mean, you have the swing, and then you have hitting, right? So, you know, you can have a good swing, but if you're not swinging at the best pitches, if you're not swinging at pitches that you want to hit, then it really doesn't matter what your swing's like. And then obviously it can go the other way too where you could be swinging at the best pitches in the world, but if your swing isn't built to drive those pitches or your swing isn't built where you can see the ball deep like you are seeing it, then you're going to have a problem. So it kind of goes hand-in-hand hand where you kind of have, have to have a balance of both. You can't really focus too much on the hitting side of it or the swing side of it. And if you want to, you know, kind of – be able to hit the outside pitch, be able to hit the inside pitch, be able to, you know, be adjustable, then your swing has to account for that. But at the same time, you got to be picking out good pitches to kind of let your swing work. So before we kind of dive further into this, I want to kind of lay things out for those of those people that are listening who really don't have any idea what we're talking about. And, and that includes me because some of this stuff is, you know, above my head, even though I've kind of been around you guys right. for long enough to pick up some things. So when you talk about, you know, swing path, what does that mean? What, what is hip rotation? What is elevation? Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of different parts, you know, of the swing. Right now, I think, you know, a lot of the buzzwords that are going around, you know, the hitting world is is kind of bat path, you know, barrel angle, um, you know, what what type of pitches you're looking at, elevation, launch angle, stuff like that. So, you know, anything with barrel path, launch angle, um, things like that. If if you're talking about barrel path, it's kind of how your your barrel comes through the zone when you're swinging, um, you know, and then you want to line that up with with how the pitches come in, so you have the ultimate launch angle, which is kind of the the angle that the ball leaves your bat at um, into fair territory. So you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. You can talk about hip rotation, shoulder rotation, all this stuff that kind of happens in the swing. Um, but then as you dive deeper, you know, what causes the hip rotation? Is there really hip rotation? I mean, you know, you see Miggy in tons of videos, his hips don't even rotate and he hits a ball out to left field. So what does that really mean? You know, what's driving the swing? Um, what happens with the upper body, how does it work with the lower body. So all these things that, you know, you can't think about when you're up at the plate because, like I said, swinging is different than hitting. Um, but and, that's, and that's interesting. I never really considered that. Right, yeah. So, I mean, as you as you look through the hitters, there's tons of different, you know, styles that work. And I always talk about, you know, you got to find your own style. But at the end of the day, you know, there's a few things that all the best hitters do in the world. Um, you know, that's the stuff that I like to study and, and try to get better at day in and day out because, you know, no matter – 
if it's, you know, Miggy, if it's Pujols, if it's, you know, Williams or Bonds, they all have things that are similar. So if you can pick those things out and you can work on those things and then kind of put it in your own style, you're going to you're going to be pretty good. But even with those things that, you know, all the all the greats use, that doesn't necessarily mean that they work for every hitter. Right. Right. I mean, I would say that, you know, it's I interesting mean, things that, that Ichiro does aren't necessarily going to work for a guy like Josh Donaldson. Right. I mean, you know, that's kind of what you see, you know, when you first start looking at the swing. Um, but, you know, over the years of just looking at tons of video and stuff, it's weird how similar swings get when you break it down. And, so, um, like, the really nitty-gritty components? Right, just, you know, what's what's driving the swing? You know, what are they doing? You know, at the surface level, you might see hip rotation or you might see their hands do something, but, but what is driving that? You know, you, you know your hips you know, open, but are they actually spinning their hips? You know, if you stand up and, and, and you spin your back leg, your hips will open. So is it a, is it a rear leg thing? Um, what do they think about? What are they feeling? You know, so it's a lot of feel stuff where, if, you know, you got to really figure out what they're doing in order for it kind of match in your swing. If you take a video of yourself, you may feel like you're swinging just like Barry Bonds is, but when you take a video, it's probably not the same. So there's a lot of surface level stuff that happens in the swing that, you know, even myself, I can get caught up in. And months later, I realize, wow, I shouldn't even been focusing on that because it's kind of a byproduct of something else that they're doing there their hands are dropping, you know, just because of something they're doing in their scap or, you know, their hips are rotating just because something with the rear leg. So stuff like that where, you know, you, you kind of look at something and you see it, but then, you know, when you feel it and you kind of match it with a video, you realize that they're doing something completely different. Now, when did you start to kind of dive into all of this really, I guess, in-depth hitting stuff? I would say probably in the beginning, beginning of the summertime, um, you know, after Big Tens last year. I wasn't really happy with where my swing was, um, so I figured, you know, what does that, anyone that wants to be an expert in the field do? And then, then they just study their ass off. So, you know, went to work and, and really studied video, read all I could, um, dove into data, you know, went on Twitter, just started following everyone that I could on there that talks about the swing. And there's some great guys on there talking about the swing and putting their, their opinions out there. But, you know, that was probably when it started, and it just really hasn't stopped since then. You know, every time I learn something new and, and then try it out, I either kind of really like it or kind of throw it aside so it's really cool to you know know every day when you go in you're trying to work on something and get better at something and, and it's fun when it all kind of clicks and, and falls into place and there were there were some books involved too this summer right yeah i read a lot of books i mean like i said there's a swing part and then there's the hitting part so i mean i kind of mixed and matched um i still read tons of books on hitting um from you know from ted williams to the mental game of baseball the tewksbury has some good stuff out so you know you have to like I said, you have to kind of divide it up between the swing and the hitting part. You got to know the mental side of the game. You know what are pitchers' tendencies. Um, you know what do they want to throw? What's their out pitch? Um, but like I said, if if you get your pitch and your swing doesn't match it, you know, and and your swing isn't built to elevate the ball um, where you're swinging at, then you're gonna have a tough time too. So it's kind of putting the two two together. So there's a baseline for what you want your swing to be, but when you go over to the plate, you still have to be able to make adjustments to the pitcher who's, you know, throwing the balls to you. Right. I mean, when it's coming in 92, 93, and you're trying to think about, you know, an internal cue to, to keep your scap up or to think about a hip, you know, you're, good luck trying to hit that pitch, um, especially when you can throw a curveball at you, a changeup at you, you know, inside, outside. So, you know, it's fun to kind of talk about and learn off the field. It's fun to kind of put it into flips or tee in the cage. But, you know, the ultimate goal is to make a muscle memory and to make it your swing so that when you go up to the plate, you're only thinking about the hitting part. You're not really thinking about the swing part. And this summer, it seemed like some of those, I guess, techniques really clicked. You had a successful summer with YD. Right, yeah. No, it was it was a lot of fun. I mean, especially the first few months, I learned a lot that I didn't really know of. And it kind of, you know, led to 
a really good spurt there with with YD and I had some really good teammates that we went to work on every day and you know it was fun out there all it was was wake up baseball eat baseball and sleep so you got a lot of work in you know there's a lot of smart guys up there you know my coaches knew a lot um, all my teammates were trying to figure out the same stuff so you know it was a really good environment to kind of learn the stuff and then <clears throat> coming back down here with Coach Vaughn and, and the rest of the team and, and trying some new stuff out and you know really just trying to keep getting better because at, at the same time you know you have a good summer you have a good week but you know is that where you want to be is your goal is to have a good week or a good summer is your goal to kind of ha- make a swing and have a hitting you know philosophy and approach that will work at the next level so you know that's ultimately where I think everyone on this team is going and everyone's kind of benefiting from so when you came back in the fall did some of the things that you learned over the summer start to rub off on other guys or did things that other guys were bringing back from their summers rub off on you how much kind of collaboration was there yeah, I mean, I work with Nickens a lot, you know, in the, in the fall. He was kind of working on similar stuff. But, you know, it's funny. A lot of guys had great, great summers. And when I came back, <coughs> um, eager to kind of share, you know, what I was when I was taught and what, what I kind of learned up there and, and put it into their swing. When I came back, I realized that their swings have kind of gotten better without them even trying to do the stuff, you know. So that kind of plays into the external and internal and, and kind of how you look at stuff and, and, and how you learn where, you know, if you kind of just set a goal for, for your body to hit a ball really hard and really far to the center of the field, you know, your swing will kind of get better just from doing that. So it's kind of cool how guys came back with different fields and different cues and, and seeing their swings get better and, and, and their approaches get better, you know, but learning different stuff or talking to different guys about it. So it's really cool how some guys, you know, can learn a little bit differently than others. Now, obviously, you know, in the in the off season, so to speak, December, January, major leagues aren't in play either, so it's kind of tough to watch other guys adjust throughout the season. But yeah. now that the major league season is underway, what kind of guys do you look to, um, you know, to kind of make tweaks to your swing? I know Josh Donaldson is a guy that that you look to every so often. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple guys, and, and for different reasons. I mean, the bigger movement guys, you can kind of see the movements a little easier. Um, if you look at a guy like Pujols, for example, <coughs> excuse me, um, his, his movements are a lot smaller, so you really have to know kind of what you're looking for to kind of see what he's doing in his swing. But when you break it down and, and you put videos in the right spot and you compare him to Donaldson or Bonds or Williams, it's really weird that when you're looking at the right stuff, they all do the same thing, you know. So um, right now, I mean, I'm just looking at guys that are having really, really good starts. You know, Ryan Zimmerman, uh, Bryce Harper made some great changes to his swing that are obviously paying off for him. Um, but, you know, even if they didn't mean to make the change or didn't mean to do something, it's kind of cool to see video from two years ago or when they were struggling to when they're doing well. All right, what were they doing that they weren't doing then? Um, you know, sometimes the swing doesn't change, and it's all about the hitting part of it, you know. So that's some stuff that, that's cool to look at where you kind of take an, take an objective look at some of the best in the world and say, all right, why were they struggling at this time and, and why are they smashing the ball now and, and just ch- try to, you know, see what they're doing differently and maybe something that's helping them that they might not even know of that you can kind of pick up on and put in put into your own swing. I'm glad you brought up Ryan Zimmerman because he's a really interesting case right now. They were talking about this on, you know, a couple of the baseball shows over the last week or so, how his launch angle last year, he was he was topping the ball a lot, hitting the ball on the ground, but his exit velocity was among one of the best in the league. And this year, his renaissance, so to speak, is right. because he's got a better launch angle and he's still hitting the ball as hard as he is. So when you take a look at things like launch angle, like the velocity and all these, you know, advanced metrics that we now have the ability to see at the major league level with StatCast, how much do you channel that into your own at-bats? You know, when you go to the plate, are you going up there with the approach of hitting the ball in the air or making sure that, that your swing path, you know, takes a slight uppercut? 
I mean, I think there's a couple of things that kind of play into that. I mean, with Ryan Zerman's case, for example, um, say you have a swing where your hardest hit ball is hit into the ground, right? So if you square it up and you're swinging down and you square it up perfectly, you're going to hit a ground ball at 100 miles an hour. And the other side of it, if you have a swing that is kind of slightly uppercut and you, you square it up perfectly, right, um, and you hit a ball 100 miles an hour at 25-degree launch angle, that's going to be a home run. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whether he changed his swing to make it so that now his new swing, his optimal launch angle is higher, or whether he's just thinking the same swing but swing up on it, you know. So those are some things that would be cool to kind of talk to guys like that, like, hey, did you make a change in your swing or did you make a change, you know, in your hitting approach? Because you, he could have t- just taken the same swing and now he's thinking get in the air and he's hitting the ball further. Um, or he could have changed his swing where now his optimal, you know, his his best hit is a home run. So it'd be kind of cool to talk to some guys like that. There's a lot of guys in the game right now that are kind of for and against launch angle. Um, I don't really think there's much discussion. I mean, you want to hit the ball hard and the line drive as much as possible, and you're going to be on base a lot. So um, for me, when you're up at the plate, you can't really think about that. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that you can you can do in training and in BP, and we have a lot of drills that, you know, you don't sit there and watch your launch angle, but you want to hit hard, you know, line drives back to the box um, that we do, you know, day in and day out. So I don't think it's as much as thinking about it at the plate, but more so making sure that you're training the right parts of your swing and training the right parts of your approach where when you're up, you know, you just kind of carry what you've been doing and BP into the game. And that's the difference between swinging and hitting like we talked about before. Right, yeah. So if you're thinking about your swing and what you should be doing on a certain pitch, I mean, you're not thinking about the count. You're not thinking about the pitcher. You're not thinking about his tendencies. You're not You're not ready to adjust. Um, your swing is, is going to be as robust as it could be. So if you're thinking about hitting, you know, and you don't have to worry about your swing, that's kind of the ultimate, you know, in the zone thing as a competitor. You're not really thinking about your mechanics. You're, you're kind of set on this is my swing. Um, I put in the hours, I put in the work, I, I prepared as much as I could, and I'm going to go up there and compete with this guy. So I think a lot of the best competitors in the world just put in so much preparation where they don't really think about the swing part per se, but they're thinking about the hitting part or, or the competing part where, you know, they can kind of know what pitch is coming, you know, in certain situations instead of thinking, all right, I got to get my hands here, my hips here, and, oh, now it's a curveball, I wasn't ready for it. So it's kind of cool how, you know, you can kind of think about the swing all you want, but if you're not swinging at some good pitches, then you're probably not going to hit the ball very well. Well, yeah, it's like that Yogi Berra quote. I'm not sure if I'm going to say it correctly, but 90% of the game is physical, the other half is mental. Right. You know, one of those yogiisms. So when you go up to the plate, you know, that swing that you've kind of built over the last, you know, eight months or so with all of these, um, with all the videos that you watched, all the practice you've put in, the swing part, that's the muscle memory that you're going to. So from a cerebral perspective, when you're kind of dueling mentally with these pitchers, I guess what I'm asking is, you know, kind of take me through an at-bat from the mental side for you. Well, it's going to vary based on a lot of things, you know. I think, you know, the best players in the world don't really have one one mindset or, or one way to beat you. It's they're ready for, you know, whatever they throw at you, and, and, and they know that whatever you throw at them, they're going to be ready for, you know, so... You know, going to the play, whether it's in the first inning, in the ninth inning, the eighth inning, where the batters are, you know, what 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 the wind's doing. Is, is it wet on the ground? Can you put a bunt down and not going to be able to field it? Um, where the base runners are at? Who's behind you? You know, what's coach giving you? What what a coach kind of wants you to do in that at bat? So there's a lot of different stuff that can kind of change, you know, what you're going to do when you step in the box. But I think ultimately everyone on our team is looking for a pitch that they can drive and hit really hard in the middle of the field, you know, until we get two strikes when we're just going to battle with with the pitcher. So um, I think you can overthink it too much too, you know. I've definitely fell victim of overthinking the swing part of it, you know, and and kind of forgetting that you got to be a hitter up there and it doesn't matter what your swing is if you're not swinging at good pitches. Um, 
but it's been it's been a fun journey and in talking to other guys who are having really good years and and seeing what they're they're thinking about or what they're not thinking about has been really cool too do you talk to other collegiate hitters about <coughs> what they're doing in terms of the success that they're having because i know this summer um one of the guys that you got a little bit closer with was brent rooker who was over in brewster and right. he's having a monster year down in mississippi state yeah I talked to a lot of guys, I mean, especially on my own team, but then again, some guys that I met, you know, in the All-Star game, Brent was one of those guys, or we just kind of hit it off, and, and we've been texting since, I think, August about the swing, and he would send me a video, and, you know, I don't really have much for him, I mean, <laughs> I don't really know what I could say at this point, um, you know, I'll shoot him a text now and then, but he's having a great year down there, but it was cool to kind of see his swing evolve and, and kind of pick his brain of what he was working on, um, you know, when you hit 320 in the SEC, with I think he had 13 bombs last year. You don't think someone's going to really work on their swing, but it was kind of cool that we were in the same state where we kind of had a little bit of success, but we weren't really satisfied with where we were. Um, and that's what I was kind of talking about. You know, do you want to be an okay college player? Or do you want to kind of work towards a swing where it's going to stick for, you know, 10 to 15 years in the big league? So um, it was really cool to kind of talk to him about what he was working on, um, you know, what he thought his weaknesses were. And obviously it's playing out pretty well for him right now. Seems like there's like a kind of neat fraternity of college baseball hitters that you kind of have formed this summer you and Brent and I guess a couple other guys I mean what are some of the other names that are in this kind of family of yours yeah I mean I, I talked to tons of guys around the country I mean I talked to JJ Schwartz a lot at, at Florida um, you know this summer I worked uh, who else I work with you know our catchers Dion Stafford and, and Wiley I worked with them a lot they're they're two of the best hit, and you got to catchers see Dion earlier this season yeah so I mean you know they they're one of the probably the two of the best hitting catchers in the country and then you throw in JJ and that's a pretty good group right there but just picking on their brains what their coaches have them do you know what they're feeling um you know I talked to to Riz down down in Kentucky I talked to you know JJ over in Arizona so there's a lot of guys that kind of you know we bounce ideas off each other and and really just kind of stay positive and stay motivated through this process because you know, sometimes you can't really find guys that are as motivated as as, as you are. You know, you don't want to talk about the swing 24-7. So it's kind of cool to have some different guys in, in different areas of the country that use different cues and, and maybe some different feels that if you can pick up one thing here and there, then you're going to have a lot to go to. Now, for those of you who aren't hip with the nicknames in college baseball, it's Riley Mahan over in Kentucky yep. and J.J. Matajevic in Arizona. And I want to touch on something because there's, there's a similarity between all of these guys that you mentioned, how vociferously you go at hitting. But also there's a big difference, and I guess the big difference is how you guys entered college baseball. Because a lot of these guys were highly regarded recruits and, right. and touted prospects going up to the Cape. But you didn't take that same path coming out of New York. You were a guy who wasn't necessarily you know, a highly touted recruit. You weren't drafted out of high school. You were originally not committed to Maryland, but here you've kind of formed yourself and made yourself into a guy who is being regarded by scouts and you know prospect ranking services and, and what have you as a guy who can project to be a major league shortstop. So tell me a little bit about what that journey's like. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that you can really take anything away from those guys. I mean, whether, you know, guys have had success earlier in their career, got all the limelight before before college, I mean, they've earned it. I know all those guys personally, and, and each one of them has worked extremely hard, so... You can't really say that anything was like kind of given to them. Oh, I don't, I don't um, think I didn't. I didn't mean it. Like <coughs> oh that. no, not you. I'm just yeah. saying in general where, you know, some guys like to put a card on me where, you know, nothing was given to me, and and all these other guys, you know, had it all handed to them, and and they had a better card. And at the end of the day, I mean, I think you know, if you go back to any of our careers, we were probably working just as hard in the same spot. It was just you know, I'm a, I'm from upstate New York, a small town. You know, hung out with Danny Mater my whole life. You know, <laughs> over at South Troy with all those guys. So, you know, we were just working and and 
sometimes, you know, news just finds certain guys and, and it kind of rolls with it. Um, but yeah, like I said, I mean, I didn't really have anything. I think that's something that kept me motivated was, you know, no one really looked it from upstate New York. Um, and honestly, I really wasn't that big of a name back then. You know, I wasn't, you know, the player that I was now didn't have the mental mindset that I had now. And, and, you know, it's not like I deserved any of that stuff. I mean, they'll find you if you're good. So, um, coming down here and, and coach Chef kind of had the same mentality where it was just come here and work it hard every day. And, and he told me that, you know, in a few years, you'll look up and, and be surprised at where you are. So I think it doesn't really matter, you know, the top, the top recruits in the country, um, you know, the guys that are getting all the press. I mean, they deserve it. They've, they've been playing really well and, and been working hard, but at the same time, it's, it's kind of a little motivation to the other guys where, you know, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter, you know, where you're at right now, if you're a sophomore in high school, if you're an eighth grader, you know, if you work hard and, and you work on the right stuff, then you can be up there someday. Right. I mean, and when you were kind of coming out of high school, correct me if I'm wrong, you were originally prepared to go to Wake Forest, but you ended up in Maryland. Yeah, I mean, Wake was one, one of the schools. I mean, I wasn't really prepared to go anywhere, to be honest with you. It was a very quick journey for me. Um, probably only like three or four weeks thinking about it, and, and I came down here and kind of fell in love with Coach Chef and, and kind of his philosophy and what he wanted He's to do. He's an easy here. guy to fall in love with. <laughs> oh, yeah, just just the way he goes about it. I mean, that's kind of, you know, he, he's from upstate New York as well, and, you know, just you can just tell the guys that were up there and, and guys that work hard and get it and, and really want a good atmosphere around them. So, you know, coming down here and just the whole atmosphere down here, you know, they wanted to win championships, and, and that's kind of what I've always been about, just, you know, doing whatever you can to win. So when I heard that, you know, I knew this was a place to go, and, um, you know, I love the guys here, and, and everyone's kind of friendly, but at the same time we push each other really hard, so it's kind of like a good mix, um, and I couldn't really be happier. Now the interesting part, I guess, about your start of the career at Maryland, there was there's some kind of way to regard Maryland as, as shortstop you with Blake Schmidt going to play professionally, Alfredo Rodriguez going to play professionally before you got here. Both guys, you know, as four-year shortstop, Blake two years as a transfer mm -hmm. in. So you were kind of the next guy, but there was a position battle between you and Andrew Bechtold, who's since gone to, I think it's Chipola, Chipola? Yeah, I'm not sure how to Florida. pronounce it, down yeah. in Florida, and he's having a good season. But there was a position battle between the two of you initially, and coming into that kind of fall, it was Bechtold who is, I guess, more... I guess expected to take that role. Safe is that safe to say? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So how does that kind of battle? How has that shaped who you are as a player now? Well, I mean, I I think you know what guys overlook is there was really like a five player battle for that position. You know, we came in, you know, me and Bechtold, and we had Dom that that was there. He was a shortstop, and I think he's a pitcher in the in the Padres organization now, throwing you know mid nineties. Um, we had Jose Quas, who was still a shortstop, even though he played third base. He was moving over there. Um, beyond it came in as a shortstop you know you had Brendan Loud trying to go over there for a few practices and, <laughs> and Coach Chef shut that down pretty quick so you had a lot of guys that were trying to fill that spot um, and it was fun I mean from day one it was it was really challenging to be honest with you I mean everyone was working at it we were moving around in practice we were playing every position no one really knew what it was going to be like and I think that's what made it so good that year was you know everyone was battling for a spot you know and, and then we had a lot of young guys come in that could I could play right away, and we had a lot of older guys on that team that, that kind of was leading the group, and they, they didn't want a young guy to take their spot. So um, I think I think if I didn't have that, I don't think I would be the player that I was today. I don't think I would have, you know, pushed myself as hard or, or, or done some extra work. So it was definitely fun to kind of, you know, grow with those guys and, and, you know, whoever started at shortstop or second base. Um, it was a lot better than just kind of having something given to you. You know, you kind of felt like you earned it, and when you're out there, you had a lot more respect for, for the guys around you, um, and you really wanted to kind of prove the coach that, that you deserve to be there. Now, we talked about hitting a lot, but ultimately one of the reasons you won that job was your defensive skills, and that's 
really one part of your game that you're maybe lauded on more than anything else is, is the slick defensive work. So how much do you put into that, you know, fielding ground balls, you know, picking up extra things defensively from guys in the major leagues or looking at video, or is it something you just kind of work on in, in practice, you know, like anybody else? Well, I mean, growing up, I was never the biggest kid. I didn't never really have the strongest arm. Um, Me too. was never the fastest guy, <laughs> first day. Um, so I relied a lot on footwork, which is kind of, you know, what everyone has to be taught. Um, but I kind of learned that from a young age because I needed to to be able to stay at short. Um, I was always athletic, um, but I never really was kind of a toolsy guy, as they say. Um, so I really relied on my footwork and, and getting my body in the right position, um, you know, getting around balls, really, really work on that. So, you know, up at South Troy, we, our field really isn't the greatest up there. It's a great environment, but the field's really rough if anyone's ever played there, so they know it. Um, so it really made you be good with your hands and your feet and get the around hops, balls. The hops train you? Oh, yeah, the hops were the hops were brutal, and, you know, we'd be up there raking it by ourselves and at night, but... Um, so ever since then, I mean, I've kind of paid more attention to the defensive side, and I think it's helped me, you know, get to where I'm at today just because, you know, not, I don't think a lot of guys put in a lot of work defensively. You know, you see a lot of guys out there taking extra swings, hitting off the tee, hitting flips, uh, but you don't really see many guys staying after to, to take some ground balls off the hack or, you know, do do some catcher picks or, or do some short hops. So that's the stuff that I like to kind of work on, and, and it's fun because those are kind of the plays that, you know, get you on sports in their top ten and, and, and let you let you dive after a ball or, or go back on a fly and, and kind of make a dive and catch. So all those things that, you know, might not show up in the box score, um, but coaches really appreciate it. I know pitchers definitely appreciate it. So being good at the little stuff like that and, and, and defense, I mean, being at the shortstop position, it's kind of a premium. So if you can't play there, if you can't play defense at short, it really doesn't matter what you're hitting like, you'll probably get moved to a corner. Um, so knowing my goal is just to stick as short as long as possible, that's something that I, I knew I had to work on. So I, I want to kind of shift gears here because you mentioned, you know, growing up with Danny Maynard earlier, and I know that you had a, a big role in Danny even being at Maryland in the first place. He was a guy who also was not necessarily intended on going to Maryland. He was prepared to go to Notre Dame, and then he ended up here in large part because of you. I mean, I think I was a connection, you know, through that, but I don't think I could take much credit for what happened there. Um, a lot of stuff just kind of fell right into place. I mean, I was up there playing with him that summer, um, and stuff was kind of, you know, falling apart a little bit. Um, and it ultimately just kind of came down to he had nowhere to go at the time. And uh, Coach Jeff has been up to, to see me a few times, so he's kind of seen a few guys up there. And, and I kind of just g gave Chef a call and then let him know, and he came up and looked at him, and Denny played great, so... He kind of remembered Danny. I mean, I think we need to fill a spot here um, at the catcher position, so it kind of just fell into place, and, and Danny played really well. So, I mean, he, he was a guy who had a lot of offers, and he could have went to a lot of different spots, um, but it just kind of, you know, kind of fell in place, and he came down here, and we've been we've been good friends for a long time, so, you know, we're rooming together now, so it's kind of all worked out, but um, I can't take too much credit for that one. I think it was just kind of something that was meant to be. Well, what's it like? I mean, your, room, your roommates with him now, you guys yeah. room together on the road. Also, what's it like being, I guess, in front of him, behind him in the batting order, being on the same field as him, traveling with him? Um, that must be pretty special for you guys. Yeah, I mean, we've been doing it since I think we were 15 or 16 years old. Um, we have, you know, really big roots up north with, with the South Troy Dodgers and Kev Rogers. And, you know, 
it's cool to kind of bring that down to Maryland and kind of have that as, as something that didn't change into college. You know, I, I was here for a year without him, but for him it's kind of been something that he's always played with. So it's kind of cool to, to still be on the same team. Um, you know, obviously, you know, in the future you know, don't know what's going to happen, but it's cool to kind of play with your friends as long as you can, you know. It's it's a competitive, you know, spot out there, but playing with friends is kind of kind of something neat, and you can't really substitute it for anything else in the world. So, you know, it's fun to have them there, and, and we've been going at it for probably four or five years now, um, and it's gonna, definitely going to be very weird when, when it's not there anymore. I mean, other other people in your room, you guys used to have a room of all hitters. Right. But now Jamal Wade's a pitcher. We talked yeah. about this a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and I think I just think that whole story is fascinating about yeah. Jamal Wade. We're going we're gonna to do a little bit more on that on Maryland Baseball Network sometime this week. But have you picked his brain from the pitcher's side of things at all? To glean, like, do you talk to the pitchers to see how they would approach you as a hitter? I do sometimes. I mean, we we face them a lot in the fall, so um, especially a few weeks when Facto isn't calling pitches, um, you kind of get to see what what they think is going to get you out. Um, but ultimately, man, it's kind of the same for every pitcher. You know, they they have an out pitch they want to go to. Um, if they can they can paint and they can locate their pitch, they're probably going to get you out. Um, so it goes back to the same thing where, you know, you want to swing where you can hit as many balls hard as possible in as many locations as you can. Um, but then also kind of have the hitting side of it where you're looking for that pitch that you know you're locked in on. So um, it's cool to kind of pick their brains. I mean, as far as Jamal goes, I mean, I don't talk to him too much about that because I, <laughs> I kind of know what he would do to get me out. Um, but he's doing really well. I mean, up in – Indiana this weekend he looked really good in, in some short time frames and not much warm up so but uh no that's been a fun it's been a fun journey and I know he's excited about it um and he's doing well so it's kind of it's definitely weird to have another pitcher in the room um Tyler Brandon still rooms with us he, he was the other pitcher so um they definitely talk about stuff but as far as you know at bats go and, and what pitchers are looking for with Jamal um I think he's still a, a little bit of a hitter in that in that mindset so maybe in a few years I'll be able to talk to him a little bit more about that. Now we've painted this picture, and I want I want to end kind of on a lighter note. We've we've painted this picture of you as a guy who you know maybe sits in your room and watches videos of swing after swing after swing after swing, really grinds it out. Um, but is that actually what you do in your spare time? I would say you know s- some of it. I mean, you can't really. I don't think you can fake a lot of the stuff. You know, you can't really fake knowledge or or understanding of stuff. So, like I said, I mean if the Coach says it all the time. I mean, if you, just, you want this to be your job and you want to be professional, then then you got to act like it. You know, you can't sit there and, and try to be one of the best players in the world and and not you know give it your all or and not put in extra effort or not kind of know more than the average baseball player. So I think you know it goes both ways. I mean, you can definitely overanalyze stuff. And um, as I'm learning more stuff and as I'm learning more about the swing and, and simplifying it, um, less time goes into it and, and it's more you know highly focused time but less of it uh, but in the beginning man it was it was like that I mean in the, in the cape it was always looking at swings always talking to guys always you know filming yourself and putting them next to Manny or or, or Bonds and seeing what they're doing um, now it's a little different I mean I'm trying to enjoy time with the team I'm trying to get schoolwork done um, we don't have much as much time in season to kind of do what you want to do um, but I would say you know yeah to answer your question I mean it's all about baseball for me <laughs> Um, always looking at stuff. I mean, if I'm not watching Designated Survivor in the room or listening to some new song that Tyler's putting me on, um, it's pretty much, you know, looking at swings, watching MLB Network, um, anything that I can really get. Now, it's interesting, and I guess just to give you a little insight, you know, when I watch a ball game 
whether it's on LB Network or I'm listening to a ball game. Obviously, you can't see the swing if you're listening, but I'm listening to the broadcasters and trying right. to pick up little things that they do that I might be able to take to Maryland Baseball Network or you know wherever I go in the future. And you know, my roommates will get annoyed with me if I'm sitting there watching a ball game with them. I say, oh, that's that's a really good phrase that right. this broadcaster used, or oh, I didn't really like how he described that play because I'm I'm looking at it at such like a micro focus. So when you're watching a ball game, are you looking at you know? Josh Donaldson and whether or not he elevated it or are you watching it kind of, you know, as a game? I think it depends. I mean, in the playoffs, it's definitely different. Um, you're just watching the game and, and kind of how they go about it. But right now, I mean, especially in season, when you're when I'm looking at stuff, I mean, when you spend as much time in baseball, playing baseball with the swing, with defense, you, like you notice everything, you know. It's hard you not start, to. Right. Like when you start – you know, learning about stuff, and and if I told you a few things that were happening in the swing, and the next time you look at a swing, you look at it completely different. You know, there's a phrase on Twitter that I saw. I think it said, "You can only see what you're looking for." You know, if you're if you're looking at a swing, you know, very optimistically, or and and you're trying to figure out stuff, and you're learning stuff, and you're reading about stuff, then you're gonna start to see it in the swing. Whereas, you know, someone who's just watching the game of baseball just kind of sees someone up there with a bat and just swinging at a ball. So, I think it depends. I mean, the more that you know, the more that you see. You know, in the game, I know. It's even funny on our team when we talk about, you know, watching a game with with Jank, he'll always see stuff that the outfielders do, you know, or say, hey, did you see that play last night where you're like, no, I was watching the batter. I was watching what someone else was doing. Um, so it's cool, you know, depending on what guys look at or, or what, what players guys are looking at on our team, we come back from seeing the same game and have 15, 16 different things that we saw. So I think I think you brought up a good point where, you know, you can only see kind of what you're looking for. You know, you're looking at broadcasting stuff where Jake might be looking at, you know, a route that a center fielder had. Um, Danny, I know when I watch with Maynard, he's always looking at a catcher and how he's receiving the ball, and, and he doesn't like how some guys receive the ball and likes it better how other guys do. So it's kind of cool watching the game with different positions, definitely, and, and, and especially pitchers, I can imagine, have, have their own way of looking at the game. But um, that's one thing, going back to Jamal, that, that has definitely changed is his strike zone when he's watching a game. You know, as a hitter, when you see that 0-2 fastball a few inches off the plate get called, you're like, man, that's a bad call. Where Jamal's going, wow, that's a great pitch <laughs> now. You know, so that's definitely that's definitely different. But, yeah, I think it, it definitely depends on who's looking at it. Well, in some ways it's a blessing. In some ways it's a curse. But overall it's for the love of the game, right. and that's, and that's yeah. why we do what we do. Yeah. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us on the Maryland Baseball Network Podcast. Yeah, Look forward it. to seeing Thanks. you play down the road. Thank you. Thanks to Kevin Smith for joining us here on the Maryland Baseball Network podcast. And now let's turn to what the Terps have this upcoming week. First, a midweek on Wednesday for the Cal Ripken Cup against Towson, uh, a team that's pretty low in the RPI. And I think Maryland should hope to win that game. Um, who do you think they start in that game? Well, that's an interesting question because we would have seen maybe who Maryland might have gone with the midweek last week when they were going to go to James Madison. But that game got ringed out, and we never got – a starter for that game, so it's unclear. I think, you know, you go back to Ryan Hill, who pitched well against William & Mary. But the Ripken Cup, it's a game that wasn't played last year because it got rained out. It was played two years ago, Maryland won, so it should be a, a fun day up in Aberdeen at the Ironbirds home park. Right, and I think you and Connor Newcomb are going up for that, so that should be a fun one. And then, well, this weekend you have the fun flight to Chicago and two-and-a-half-hour <laughs> drive to Champaign when the Terps had to play. I Ill love that airport. It's a great airport in Chicago. All right, so you can stay there. Maryland <laughs> to go play. Uh, Illinois, eighteen and twenty-three on the year, five and ten in the Big Ten. And I mean, we've talked about series all year that Maryland could, should, 
sweep, whatever we want to say is the terminology for it. But I think this is another one of them, considering they need to improve the road, re road record. Also, just pick up some confidence on the road, frankly. And then third, Illinois has been a super inconsistent team this year, in large part due to the pitching staff, which has a team ERA of 5.66. Well, Illinois, very interesting team because two years ago, they went on that run where they won 27 straight, swept the Big Ten Conference Award, had the Big Ten Player of the Year, the Coach of the Year, the Pitcher of the Year, and the Freshman of the Year. It was really unbelievable. And day. by the way, that's what you have to do if you want to host a regional coming out of this conference. Right, and I, I completely agree with that. And they played in College Park last year, Maryland and Illinois, and the Terps took two out of three. That was a series that was kind of circled when you saw the schedule come out for 2016 after Maryland was able to knock them off in the Big Ten tournament and snap that streak. But they've kind of fallen off, you know, as those players have left. Cody Sedlock is now doing pretty strong things in the Baltimore Orioles organization after winning Pitcher of the Year last year. That's right, Illinois had Big Ten Pitcher of the Year in back-to-back -back seasons. But that doesn't look like it's going to happen this year. As you mentioned, that ERA inflated up over five. They do, however, Justin, have a chance, and this is maybe Tyler Blum's biggest competition for freshman of the year. Michael Massey, who's slashing 327, 356, 476, with five home runs and 30 RBIs, back-to-back -back Big Ten Freshman of the Week awards. And, well, the, the most outstanding number that we realized looking at these stats, only 11 strikeouts in 168 at-bats. Yeah, he's really having a great year. Uh, he's from Illinois, so a hometown product. He's already won Big Fre Big Ten Freshman of the Year a couple of times, and he's been basically a steadfast player in the middle of their lineup. Coming into the year, he was the 12th best recruit, according to whatever, by perfect game, excuse me, um, that anyone in the Big Ten got, and I think he's ex exceeded those expectations. Really solid left-handed hitter, and I agree. If it's not Blom, it's Massey. He's had a great year. But I think when it comes down to it, the winning that Maryland has done and the winning the Terps have done specifically in Blom starts still makes him the front runner. But you can't discount what Massey's done. Probably the second best hitter in that Illinois lineup. Well, and another underlying storyline for Maryland and Illinois and Michael Massey shares a high school with Kevin Biotic. They both went to Brother Rice. So that'll be a fun little inter-conference, inter alum rivalry however you want to call it I'm not sure if they were there at the Definitely same time not what you just said but yeah that was a little something. bit a little bit wordy <laughs> but you can call it something and we'll be sure to you know get the full story on that this weekend for those games out in Champaign Illinois a place where the Terps have not yet traveled to in the Big Ten so this will be the third trip that Maryland makes this season to a Big Ten opponent for the first time in in conference in school history had Nebraska earlier than Indiana this past weekend, now Illinois. Yeah, I mean, it, it took a few years, but now they'll finally get around to start playing these teams at their home fields, and it's always cool to, you know, see a new campus. I know I took the opportunity to walk around Indiana University for Very nice a few minutes. It was. Um, I went into a, a store and almost bought those candy striper warm-up no, pants. No, you didn't. <laughs> I saw them, and I was like, ah. You thought about it. I thought about it, and I said Eisenberg would make fun of me. <laughs> You're right. I would have. I wouldn't have been the only one either. Yeah, um, for Illinois, uh, I mentioned it a moment ago, but I think the pitching staff is the big issue. Their Friday night guy, Ty Weber, has an ERA of over 4-3, and then no one else who starts games for them is under 5.5. I mean, there's really, there's only two guys on their entire staff that have an ERA under 3, and it's Zach Deverman, who's made eight appearances, only thrown six and two-thirds innings, and Joey Gerber, who's their main reliever out of the pen, with 22 appearances and a 2.67 ERA. But everyone else up above 3, that's not something you want for a pitching staff that really has been one of the best in the Big Ten over the past 
couple of seasons. One guy we didn't mention on the offensive side of things, Jack Yalowitz, who is making his own push for Big Ten Player of the Year, a guy who started off the season really, really strong and is still continuing to do so, hitting 340 with 10 home runs and 40 RBIs. That leads the Illini. Also an on-base percentage of just shy of 400. Um, not to be outdone, however, Pat McInerney, he leads the team with 12 home runs. So that's where the power comes from, Yalowitz and McInerney. Absolutely, and I, I think the Terps might be happy to not play in such a small ballpark at Illinois this weekend because the balls were flying out of Indiana, and that ended up being a disadvantage, even though Maryland was able to hit some home runs. They're not predicated on the long ball, I don't think. Illinois isn't either. It's really two main guys, Yalowitz and McInerney. So if the Derbs can continue to keep the ball in the ballpark like they have most of the year, I think they have the clear advantage in the series. And it should be a nice cheering section for Kevin Biondic, who's really returning kind of at least as close as possible to his hometown. When the Terps went to Iowa last year, raucous crowds for, for Kevin Biondic, so that should be a lot of fun. But going back to our conversation, really at the beginning of this podcast, and we were talking about kind of those Big Ten scenarios, Illinois right now at 5-10 and 10 in conference play, they're on the outside looking in to that conference tournament. Top eight seeds make it. But Illinois is only two games behind Michigan State, the eight seed. The Illini, they host Maryland, they go to Rutgers, then they host Iowa. So if Illinois can, you know, string some things together with nine conference games left, not necessarily out of the picture here. Right, and it's always difficult to play against a desperate team, and that's what Maryland is going to, to be doing this weekend. And I know I mentioned it as a joke before, but it is a little bit of a pain to get to this campus from what I've heard. So that could play a factor as well. But I think after what happened in Indiana last week, I think the Terps will be fully motivated to get back on track and keep playing good baseball as we go down the stretch towards the postseason. So we'll wrap up this edition of the Maryland Baseball Network podcast. Terps are back in action on Wednesday when they take on Towson in Aberdeen, Maryland. That's at Ripken Stadium, home of the Aberdeen Ironbirds, for the Ripken Cup. And that game is scheduled to get underway at 7 o'clock. We'll start with the Terps pregame show at 6.30. I'll be there alongside Connor Newcomb. Should be fun one up about 45 minutes north of College Park. Then the Terps travel on the road again to Champaign, Illinois, for the first time in program history for a three-game set against the Illini Friday starting at 7 o'clock Eastern, Saturday at 4 o'clock Eastern, Sunday at 2 o'clock Eastern, and Terps pregame beginning 30 minutes before each one of those games. Should be a fun series out there against the Illini. So special thanks to Kevin Smith for joining us on this edition of the Maryland Baseball Network podcast. Again, be sure to check us out on Twitter at MDBaseballNet and like us on Facebook. That's Facebook.com slash MDBaseballNet. Well, if you're listening this far, you might as well go ahead and subscribe on iTunes. Just search for the Maryland Baseball Network podcast in the iTunes store. We appreciate it. Leave us a comment or a view, whatever, what have you. Text me, text Justin if you're close enough to have our phone numbers and let us know what you think. Or if you come up with a name for Work in Progress, because right now it's a work in progress. So that'll do it. For Justin Glandy, I'm Jay Geiselberg. We'll see you in Towson and then in Illinois. So long.